The Me Too movement has led many people to share their experiences with sexual harassment and sexual assault. It has sparked conversations and controversy and maybe even cultural change. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio dedicated to conversations about Me Too and its impact. I'm Charity Nebbe. When the Me Too hashtag went viral, millions of women and others shared their stories of sexual harassment and sexual assault. The movement has exposed the abuses of a number of high-profile people, the majority of which are men. In this episode, we decided to focus on what this cultural conversation has meant for men, personally, socially, and culturally. I started out talking with Benjamin Whittington, a junior in political science at Iowa State University. Ben, let's talk about when when Me Too went viral, when these things started bubbling up online and you were reading these stories. How were you and your friends starting to talk about what they were seeing? Uh, well, it was definitely, I guess you could say it was a, a big shock um, that... Um, this thing that we all think is really horrible was happening so often and to so many people, uh, whether it's in college campuses or in Hollywood or in politics. Um, it was definitely a shock to see it as widespread as it was. Well, and that was shocking to you, even though you have women in your life who've encountered this, right? Yes, yes. Um, I, you know, thinking when something like that happens to someone so close to you, uh, you would like to imagine that it wasn't as uh, wasn't as reoccurring as it is around the country. When you were reading these stories and and thinking, "Wow, this is a lot more common than I thought it was," did you have friends who were expressing doubt and saying, "I, I don't believe this"? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I think that's you definitely start to see that uh, now more than ever uh, in my friend group. Um, normally, um, when something like this comes up, uh, you normally have the uh, position of, you know, believe the victim. Um, but now it, you're starting to see more and more, even, you know, on talk shows or news, or even in my social life, you start to see more, uh, doubt and more, um, questioning of the woman's story. For you personally, I understand that, that doubt and questioning, led to a a pretty big change for you personally. And that was when Roy Moore was running Mm -hmm. for election. And there were a number of allegations against him of um, sexual assault and Mm. and also interest in very young girls. Um, What happened? Tell me about what was going on with you. Um, Well, at first, I I would say that um, I would I was a member of the uh, college Republicans here on campus. And, um, you know, I was involved in politics and hence my major. And I started to see with that situation, um, that willingness to start doubting and and trying to bring down people's stories and their experiences um, for political gain um, and just to win. And that really uh, bothered me uh, when I would bring it up that, hey, you know, People don't lie about this sort of thing. Like we try, like, we should try our best to actually take these uh, women seriously, especially if it's something as serious as you know going after very young girls. Um, but the people, I want to say, in those circles, just 
would not want to believe it. And I think it's like happening on both sides, but I've only I've only experienced it from that side, and it's definitely moved me more to the center than it did to the right. Interesting. And let's talk about socially. Um, describe your social circle a little bit for us. Um, well, uh, I'd say it's pretty large, uh, not to brag or anything, but I'm uh, I'm a member of fraternity here on campus. I'm a member of student government. Um, I have a lot of you know uh, friends from different majors and um, from different you know genders and backgrounds from I, I would even say all around the world. And um, I definitely get a pretty wide set of opinions, especially politically. But usually this is should be what I would expect to be the the common line that we all share, but that's not the case anymore. Well, okay, describe that line, that common line. What do you think it should be? Um, I would definitely say the common line when it comes to something like the Me Too movement um, would be uh, have have a trust in allegations and make sure that those allegations, no matter who uh, is levying them, are properly like looked into and investigated because the, the worst thing that could happen is that, you know, some guilty person who did something so horrible to someone else doesn't get punished for that. You have, as you mentioned, a large social circle. Who do you find is most interested in talking about Me Too with you? Is this something you find yourself talking about more with your male friends or with your female friends? Um, I'd say it's a mix of both, but definitely more now with my male friends. Um, since we tend to, that's usually the the or the squad, if you will, of the people that we go out with. Like when we go to like say a bar or something, um, that's when you know you engage mostly with the other sex and you you uh, kind of talk about it. So I would definitely say more in a in a in a one on one sense, it would be more with my uh, guy friends. But in a group setting, it's usually with. Um, my female friends. So when you're going to a bar or you're going to a party or something like that and uh, your guy friends maybe bring it up or, or you start talking about it, what do you talk about? What are the concerns? Um, uh, the concerns would be, um, you know, interacting with them uh, at a bar, uh, with women at a bar. Um, particularly, I know a couple of my guy friends um, don't or like, like picture like a crowded bar. Like they don't want to navigate through the crowd if there is a woman there because they're afraid that, you know, there might be some inappropriate touching and um, they they don't want to interact with them as much, I would say. And it's usually something like that. Um, and I to me, it kind of seems a little excessive, but, you know, that's just what we're dealing with now, I guess. Do you feel like that's a genuine feeling or do you feel like it's a um, more of a political statement when they say that? Um, honestly, I guess it depends on the uh, it depends on the guy friend. But um, there's definitely a mix of both. Um, there's the people that, um, you know, hear like or have the stance that most of them are lying. And so they think all women, you know, seek to destroy them like that and then there are people that are actually like kind of just concerned with you know not getting into any trouble or keeping their head down or something like that do you feel like the me too movement has changed your behavior socially um definitely um i would definitely say i'm uh a lot more uh careful uh i definitely like to 
um, approach like sexual encounters with uh, more communication. Um, that doesn't always work out, uh, especially today in our culture. That's not really expected. Um, but I think that's a healthy way to go forward, and that's the best way to go forward. Have you found yourself looking for advice or resources on how to negotiate consent, things like that? If, if you're feeling like you need to be more careful, have you looked for something to, to give you some guidance? Uh, yeah, that's where uh, a lot of my female friends come in. Um, I try to, you know, ask them like, hey, like, 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 really, like, how would you really like someone to approach you or to um, interact with you? And, um, you know, you know, you know, we're friends and we talk about our different experiences and we we critique them and we make sure that we're all kind of on the same page, especially with my female friends. And do you feel like when they are are telling you, when they're being honest with you, do you feel like there's a, a disconnect between what they're saying to you and the messages that you're getting in the media, for example, through movies and popular culture? Um, with, with I'd say like most of them, yes. Um, a lot of the things you see in like um, the movies or the media say you have to be like super aggressive and like asking or communicating in any way you just have to know um but that's really not the case when i talk to a lot of my um female friends they say that you know um it you should be very clear um and make sure that you're not trying to uh take advantage or just uh be belligerent and aggressive with a girl um that's definitely not something my female friends like on on average. Well, Ben, I want you to stay with us for the rest of the hour. It's great to have uh, the perspective of a man who's in college right now. Benjamin Whittington is a student at Iowa State University, a junior majoring in political science. And I want to bring Cody Howell into the conversation now, violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa. And Cody, you've been facilitating a lot of conversations with college men. When you're listening to Ben, uh, are you hearing similarities between what you've been hearing from students at the University? of Iowa? Yes, absolutely. None of this is new. Um, I feel like I feel like it's a lot of uh, this is repeating itself as like, what's next? You know, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Um, and recognizing that it's not a one-step process. It's a long uh, iterative process where we're figuring out what to do, asking the questions, and something that Ben mentioned that's really important is talking and communication, especially talking with women about um, understanding consent dialogue, understanding consent scripts for men, uh, navigating that in a way that feels um, healthy and authentic is a huge part of that. But, you know, it's it's part of like we need to incorporate that consent talk for men by men and saying like it's important that we have these talks. It's important that men understand the importance of asking women what do you want? What feels good? How can I, you know, make you feel safe and make you feel good and have that reciprocal, you know, backwards and forwards like are women asking men too? 
I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too from Iowa Public Radio. In talking about men after Me Too, I also wanted to bring Alan Heisterkamp, who's director of the Center for Violence Prevention, into the conversation. I asked him if he's been hearing from parents who are worried about their sons being falsely accused of sexual misconduct or rape. Well, um, not necessarily specific to, to sons, but I think in general, overall, I think parents... Um, you know, who are raising um, sons and daughters are much more aware and, and cognizant of, you know, some of the, the, the challenges and some of the potential uh, dangers and incidences of harm that their their children may experience or be a um, um, witness uh, directly or, or indirectly. Um, it's interesting, about four years ago, we, we surveyed roughly 700 parents who had students in secondary schools in Iowa, and two-thirds of the parents' charity were would, would have been supportive of schools, placing some increased emphasis on some of these topics that we're talking about here today, you know, w- whether that be through the health curriculum or through the uh, maybe a family and consumer science course or what have you. But there was, I think, some recognizable gaps or some parents wanting uh, maybe some support um, with their youngsters in these conversations. And, you know, both Ben and, and Cody referenced this, this idea, this, this, this practice of, of visiting and talking and, and kind of holding each other accountable on what does that mean? What does that look like? And what, what groups are doing that already, but what groups um, maybe have lacked behind and, you know, what, we have found what I've experienced over the last 17 years is that it's still a challenge to get men and boys to talk about these issues. Sex ed in our schools is not new, although it has certainly evolved over time. What do you think we've been missing as we try to educate young people about their own sexuality and about interacting with those that they're sexually interested in and and that kind of thing? Alan, what's been missing? Well, one thing that's not been missing, Charity, has been um, if you look at a, if you look at the health curriculum that um, has been in existence for the last two 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 plus decades, um, a lot of the prevention around sexual violence prevention, around harassment prevention, around bullying prevention um, in our curriculum has a lot to do with um, reducing the risk factors of those behaviors taking place, which is a is a is a is a good thing to talk about. It also, but but at the expense of negating some of the protective factors that would be much more um, be helpful and also engaging, because we talk about protective factors, people can find ways in which they can be a part of the solution um, in prevention. But the the challenge with really having focused so many years on risk reduction practices is that it places the the responsibility and onus. Um, on the potential target or the person who is receiving the unwanted comments, the unwanted touch, the um, behaviors or the assaultive behaviors. And it's almost as if when it does happen, the question comes up is, well, what weren't you practicing safely to prevent this from happening? Mm -hmm. Which kind of takes the emphasis off the person who's perpetrating the harm. Right. Cody, I see you nodding your head a lot. I mean, this is a conversation that has been taking place among women for a very long time, but now the idea is to expand the conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's critical that we recognize where we're putting the emphasis of safety. Um, you know, we're telling women, and especially you know, young college and high school age women, 
the way to keep themselves safe is to do X, Y, and Z, dress X, Y, and Z way. Um, and the same cultural scripts are not being put out there for boys and men about, you know, what you need to be doing to engage in healthy relationships, how to talk uh, respectfully to one another, how to, you know, create safety when you're talking about consent. Those talks don't really happen and the cultural messages that are being sent to men and boys, especially from a very early age, are mixed at best and dangerous um, in other ways. So I think it's really important that we critically analyze some of the harm reduction strategies um, that are put out there and say, what place do they have versus what prevention efforts could we be um, enforcing? I'm curious, is there a way to make that conversation empowering for men. I mean, I think that some people get a little defensive when we have these conversations saying, you know, not all men are predators. Not all men are a threat. Why do we make them out to be, which I know is not what you're doing. But is there a way to make that conversation empowering for the men that you're talking to? Absolutely. I think it's important to recognize that not every man is going to be a uh, potential predator. And what we want to be focusing on is the environment around the aggressor creates all the difference when we're looking at potential perpetration. We want to make sure that we're talking about when you think of that sketchy bar or that um, basement at a party, it's is that place itself dangerous or the people in it potentially dangerous? And what can you do to create that safety by using bystander intervention, having conversations about what is and isn't okay, and noticing and recognizing red flags in your male buddies and having that conversation when it feels good. You know, I think that we talk about locker room talk and we say, you know, it's just boys being boys, but we don't oftentimes create cultural scripts where what can boys say to other boys that could potentially create a different change about the way we view sex, domination, um, healthy and consensual sex. We need to be building that into the way that we teach our boys and men about uh, what it means to be a man, what it means to respect bodies, what it means to respect safety. So I think we need to find a way to say, you know, we want you to grow up to be the man we expect you to be. And part of that is valuing safety and valuing your community And if you want to see a healthy and safe community, part of that is you have to be a healthy and safe person. So building that into the way that we build up our men and boys and leadership and um, fraternities, you know, clubs, organizations, there has to be a sense that we're we're doing this for the betterment of boys all around. Alan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Do you feel like these these conversations, this different approach, or at least uh, an addition to the approach that we've been taking, can that be empowering for men? Yeah, I've I've seen it empower men. Um, being in training sessions or in conversations where light bulbs go off, and you'll hear, have a uh, a young man or an adult man, for that matter, you know, reflect and say, you know. I've behaved in that way or I've laughed at those jokes. I've, I've been silent when my pals or my teammates, you know, were, you know, talking, um, you know, disparagingly about maybe a partner or some, some, uh, you know, intimate event that, that they were sharing and, and asking the question, why, why do men brag about their sexual exploits? Why, why do men harass and grow up? women and girls and in some cases other other men and asking those questions gets into the conversation about well what does 
what does it mean to have power and control and to, to feel that sense of, of privilege over others? And I, I think embedded into these conversations are these topics of uh, patriarchy, of privilege, of power. These have become politicized words um, from dominant, within the dominant culture, making it almost, um, uh, you know, uh, totally uh, inappropriate or, you know, not a part of the, the, the man code, quote unquote, um, to, to do those things. And when in fact our experiences have been for several years that if you gather men together to have a serious conversation about how some of these behaviors have impacted them personally um, in their lives and their families um, with their friends, et cetera, um, there are tears, there are, you know, regrets, there are emotions that they haven't, um, you know, really openly shared. And, and our, our trainings aren't therapy sessions. They're, they're about really, as Cody was mentioned, how do you empower individuals as friends and colleagues and coworkers to recognize these behaviors? And then let's practice on the next time we encounter these activities or something similar to it. How can we show up? How can we actually respond in a way that's, that's healthy and supportive of my friend, and 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 what we're learning is that what we're trying to um, really make uh, socially acceptable is that it's okay for men to to uh, to challenge and to call out other men and to hold each other accountable and hold ourselves accountable. That 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 this is a, a normal part of, of of civil society, and and that we we need to to step into that space as awkward as uncomfortable as it is, um, but it gets easier and better with practice. Well, and Ben, I want you to weigh mm-hmm. in on, um, as. A man who's in college and mm-hmm. you're, you know, in this culture and you've got the the peer pressure surrounding you, does it feel like this could be an empowering moment or, or does it does it feel like more pressure from another zone? Um, I, I think it, it definitely can be. Um, and we were talking, I believe it was Cody mentioned uh, the the cultural scripts for like women. Um, I, I think you at least in my experience in my fraternity, uh, you start to see kind of those uh, cultural scripts being put onto, I guess, young men as well. Um, definitely not to the same extent, but I think it's a step in the right direction. I think something like this would actually could be helpful. Jay is on the line now. Hi, Jay. Hello. Hi. What would you like to talk about? Well, uh, the Me Too movement in general. Uh Maybe you can tell by my voice that I'm from a different generation, but I have some thoughts here that, and some concerns. Um, One of the things is that in this day and age, and proponents of the justice system say that we are innocent until proven guilty, but if a woman or a child says that they have been taken advantage of or someone has crossed a line with them, it seems like the burden of proof shifts to the person that was accused and that you almost become guilty until you prove yourself innocent. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't plenty of cads out there, but in my experience throughout my life, if I ended up with someone and we spent some sexual time together and the next day they were unhappy for whatever reason, there might have been a face slap, 
there might have been scratches on your face. There might even be a flat tire. But if somebody really wanted to hurt someone today, all they have to do is say, this guy crossed the line. And you know what? You're pretty well screwed when that happens. Well, Jay, thank you so much for sharing that thought. And Jay is not alone in in having these concerns. I mean, we've heard some very high profile men, including the president of the United States, saying that this is a dangerous time for young men and uh, concerns about these accusations ruining someone's career or someone's life without evidence, without proof. Alan, I would love for you to respond to that. Well, you know, it gets to the, it gets really to the issues of um, the, the the caller uh, Jay, I believe, is his name about the false accusation. And again, this this comes up oftentimes in our conversations as well. But um, I mean, statistically, you know, two three percent false accusations of of an incident of sexual abuse or, or rape allegations, which are consistent with many other, you know. Um, felony crimes or other crimes against um, individuals, persons, or, or property. So it's statistically no, no, uh, no different than those others. Um, what, what has happened, though, is that individuals who have perpetrated, who have crossed the line, who have not been in consensual relationships, um, have basically weighed the odds and understanding that they're less likely to be um, uh, challenged or to be re- reported uh, sexual assault and rape or is the least reported crime that exists um, whether the, the, the whether the perpetrator or the, whether the uh, victim is male or, or female and so we know that um, you know a one in a thousand two in a thousand chance would a person be ever convicted um, that uh, for, for a crime of that nature and that's why it's been important for the last well since 2000 2001 um, here on college campuses is really talking about affirmative consent. You know, h- how is it that you knew that you, that what you were doing was consensual? What were what? Tell us about that. So, in those investigations and in those, you know, uh, cases that 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 come forward, um, you know, that's not an undue burden. I, I think it would be responsible for both parties to be able to identify and articulate what was it about what was it about the uh, activity that, that you knew you had consent and if we approach it from that angle um, I, I think that's a really positive step moving forward well and uh, Ben I'd love to have you weigh in on what Jay was saying as well because while Jay is from a different generation mm-hmm. you're hearing some of the same things from men in your generation aren't you uh, yeah for sure um, I would I would say well, Alan brought up a lot of good points about statistics and how um, most, you know, victims of sexual assault don't, you know, lie or make false accusations. Um, But you definitely start to hear about that more and more. Um, It's bled into everything from Hollywood to politics. Um, But here, especially on campus, uh, it's a very uh, it's a very divisive issue. And you, you will definitely hear people. Uh, say that, you know, oh, what about my due process or something like that? Um, but I think that does that does two things. Um, it it kind of lowers the um, it lowers the, I guess, tension for victims to come forward if, you know, they feel like their stories will be believed and also gives, I guess, the the non predatory man like 
a really good sigh of relief that they're not going to be falsely uh, accused if every single uh, case is taken seriously. I want to bring now Menakshi Gigi Durham into the conversation, professor and collegiate scholar and associate dean with the University of Iowa's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Her research emphasizes issues of gender, sexuality, race, youth cultures, and sexual sexual violence, and the media. Uh, Gigi, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Charity. It's great to be part of this conversation. Well, and and I want to focus on your research and the media this hour. Earlier in the hour, uh, I was talking to Ben about some of the messages that men and boys are getting from the media. And we've seen a lot of conversations just about how sexual relationships, romantic relationships are portrayed in popular culture and how so much of that is at odds with the Me Too movement. Gigi, what have you been thinking about? There, the typical portrayal of masculinity and even of relationships in the media, um, you know, masculinity is generally defined, especially sort of ideal masculinity or what we call hegemonic masculinity in gender studies, um, you know, is sort of um, represented as being aggressive, um, unemotional, powerful, and you think of sort of characters that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays or like The Rock, you know, that kind of stuff. Like it's always, uh, it's always about being sort of uh, physically dominant and very often the portrayals, um, especially, well, I mean, I think they continue to objectify women and also portray relationships as, um, you know, somewhat non-consensual. I mean, in, in many, many sort of supposedly romantic situations, there's actually an undertone of coercion and violence that is very troubling and that continues to give the message that, um, you know, that that uh, sexuality is somehow coupled with male violence. Um, for example, in most um, horror movies, like, and the scholar Jackson Katz makes this point, that just when the killer is about to strike, it's usually preceded by a sexual interlude, you know, with sort of women undressing or, you know, a couple about to have sex or something like that. And that's exactly when the killer strikes. And so um, so, so sex and violence are sort of, um, you know, linked together in a, in a really problematic way. Right when your av- average heterosexual male viewer is really aroused, that's when the violence happens. And those sorts of things are really problematic. Well, and I find it interesting not not necessarily just violence, but when we think about mm-hmm. some of the most iconic romantic comedies, the uh, yeah. the undertone there is, I mean, there's so often this scene where, for example, a man forces a kiss on a woman and that's the moment at which she realizes that she truly loves him. Or there are, are moments, uh, gosh, so many. In fact, the John Hughes movies from the 1980s are are have been widely discussed. Molly Ringwald, who was the star of most of those movies, talking about how troubling it is to her now to look back at the culture that was portrayed in those films, Gigi. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and of course, you know, we weren't having these kinds of conversations in the 1980s, and the, so those films were made at a, at a moment when, you know, really nobody had, had thought very much about these sorts of issues of consent. Or, um, but yeah, I think about um, The Breakfast Club, you know, which is still iconic and that teenagers still watch all the time. You know, it's very popular, but Judd Nelson's character really harasses Molly Ringwald's character. It's horrible. And, but in the end, some sort of romantic connection happens between them. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, a, lo- a lot of films like that. And of course, you know, if you start thinking about all those American Pie movies and Porky's and those, I mean, you know, they're, they're portrayed as comedies, but they still represent masculinity and particularly 
aggressive ways in sexual relationships where women are objectified and men are the the aggressors. Well, and I think that it uh, it's striking that we really weren't having those conversations. Those were the most popular movies of the 1980s, and we really weren't having those con- conversations at that time. Uh, but, Alan, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean... A lot of people in Generation X, for example, grew up watching these films and following generations as well with whatever, you know, whatever kinds of films and television shows they've been watching. Does it does it feel like the 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 script is getting flipped that suddenly the rules have changed? Is that something you hear from from young men or men my age that you work with who say, you know, maybe this is this is how it's supposed to work. And now you're telling me that's not how it works anymore. Well, yeah, um, it's interesting. So uh, in the 1970s, Paul Paul Kibble devised uh, an activity called the man box, which is used prolifically all across the the globe now. But having these conversations about, um, you know, the masculinity and the social construction of how it's represented and whether I'm talking to a group of middle school students or a group of adult men um, we all we all know what those messages are that we get from multiple sources and resources in society uh, about what it means to be a man and we, we all know what those whether whether we adhere to those or believe that those are actually um, true to our, in our own experiences, but we know what are some of those um, behaviors are. Some of that that Gigi just mentioned, we we can list them. A twelve year old can list them today, just as well as an eighty year old man can list those. And so that that really hasn't changed. But what is changing, I believe, is understanding that that those are unrealistic and unhealthy at times. Can be unhealthy taken to extremes. Uh, on, on for men and for boys. And I see just a continual gradual growth and understanding that those, those very, you know, strict gender norms don't define, do, do not define who we are as, who I want to be as a man, or as a father, as a son, as a classmate, as a partner. Um, and we're expanding uh, slowly, but surely we're, we're expanding. Um, I think the, uh, what it means to be a, a man in today's society. Those conversations, those experiences must be incredibly powerful to the men and boys who participate in them. But the vast majority of men and boys aren't ever going to have that opportunity. I mean, they watch the movies and the TV shows, but it's a select few who wind up in workshops with Alan Heisterkamp or with Cody Howell. I mean, Alan, how do you think about that? Well, you know, in, in 2000, 2001, we started in, uh, at West High School in Sioux City and began this this uh, conversation. Um, and so the center here at UNI has been slowly over time working 25, 30 high schools across the state of Iowa who um, are having these conversations and oftentimes facilitated by older juniors and seniors in high schools with the support of their the, the, the teachers, the counselors, the community, the community um, advocates, the prevention specialists, you know, who work uh, in our schools, in our community. Um, we're having these conversations. We've probably reached over 25,000 students um, since that, that time. And the conversation and the language continues to grow. And so when I will have students come on campus here um, as first year students, and I can tell you that's no different than Iowa or Iowa State, but there are a growing number of students who come in 
um, having had some of these discussions, have some of the language um, around social construction, about gender, about equality, about um, masculinity. Um, it's exciting to see, but there's just so much more work to do. It's it's a multi-pronged approach, as as Cody said. This is this doesn't happen overnight, but um, there's something to really be optimistic about. I want to go back to the phones, 866-780-9100. Natalia is on the line in Indianola. Hello, Natalia. Hi. Hi. What would you like to talk about? Um, and I'm sorry for bringing it back to something that was earlier in the conversation, but I wanted to discuss specifically with the um, false accusations. One of the things, and unfortunately I'm driving, so I don't have all of my research, but um, one of the things that I found when I was doing my case studies at uh, Simpson College was that a very high percentage of the false accusations actually come out of or directed towards men of color or false accusations are used towards trans people in order to deny us rights. And I, I just wanted to bring that into the conversation to put it in a little bit more perspective. As a cisgender white man, you're significantly less likely to be falsely accused of rape as um, a cisgender black man. Um, one of the most famous examples is Emmett Till, but these situations happen all the time, is even in present day. And I just wanted to make sure that that part of it was out there. Natalia, thank you so much for bringing that up. I do think that's an incredibly important part of the conversation. And Gigi, I, I would love to hear uh, from you on that subject. Uh, Natalia brings up a, a really important point, and, and there's a corollary to it as well, which is also that um, people of color are far more likely to be victims in this situation as well. Uh, Gigi? Um, yes. I mean, I mean, again, if we... If we turn to the media, we can see that people of men of color in particular are very often portrayed as criminals or rapists or, you know, the Latino gangster or whatever. So, um, so we're certainly getting those stereotypes from the media. And yes, as, as Natalia pointed out, um, even though, again, as I think Alan or someone said earlier, the, the percentage of false accus- accusations is extremely low. I mean, there really aren't that many false accusations levied overall. Um, but... Uh, yes, when they are, they do tend to be targeted at men of color, you know, who are, again, perceived as a social threat. And that sort of thing does sort of exacerbate the racism that already exists in society. So it is, you know, definitely we need to be thinking intersectionally about this, thinking in terms of uh, race, class, gender, uh, nationality. All of these things do play into uh, the perceptions of, um, yeah, and then even the actual reporting of uh sexual assault. Ben, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. As a black man navigating this world in Iowa, which uh, means you are part of a a minority population, how do you think about that? Um, Yeah, that was a pretty good good point. Um, My mom would always tell me, you know, uh, to to be careful uh, because of that. Um, I definitely do, you definitely do see that in social situations, that perception that I'm somehow more dangerous than the average dude or that my actions are a little bit, are perceived as more aggressive. But uh, I think that, you know, men of color have to uh, uh, navigate and adapt and uh, have to uh, build on the conversation. And Cody, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, because you uh, 
I can imagine that in having conversations with men looking for authentic masculinity, looking for ways to to engage in bystander intervention, that kind of thing, you have to have these conversations as well about about risks and about privilege. Right. And understanding those necessary parts and moving parts as well. Um, Understanding that, you know, at the core of consent is the safety aspect, the consideration for somebody else's well-being. Um, And I just think that it's really important to recognize that some people maybe have more power and privilege to navigate consent talks with safety. And I've talked with men who are like, I feel scared to ask because if I... If I do the wrong thing, if I ask the wrong way, am I going to be pinned or targeted? Much as like Jay was saying, they worry about, am I making the wrong move? And I think that we need to talk a little bit about, you know, if we really bring it back to let's bring some humanity back into consent. Let's bring some uh, understanding of where you, what power dynamics are at play in the consent talks. It could be really helpful to understand how we can navigate those safely. So understanding that, you know, you know, you're more likely to experience uh, sexual assault as a man than you are to ever be falsely accused is something that it's really important to recognize. And if we're that worried about being falsely accused, what can we do to build in consent into every day? What can we do to have these conversations with our boys? Um, what can we do to make sure that we're like calling that out when we see it so that we're actually creating a safer environment for men and women. We have certainly seen a, a lot of conversations take place because of the Me Too movement and action take place as well because of the Me Too movement. I, I would love to hear with just we've got about a minute and a half left. I want to hear your opinions about does this represent real cultural change? Alan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the culture is changing. I mean, obviously it starts with awareness, but changing culture, whether in, in by organization, by institution, I mean, that's where it starts, on this campus, in this neighborhood, in this community, in this organization, and having having these conversations. And, and while we're bringing in the bystander approach, understanding that we're talking about a, a, a cultural shift and a cultural change, which means attitudes, beliefs, perceptions. Um, uh, Mark Twain has a great quote, um, education consists mainly of what we unlearn. And there's so many things to unlearn that will help move us forward in this discussion. Gigi, what do you think? Real cultural change from this movement? Yeah, cultural change, of course, takes a very, very long time, especially when you're talking about sort of the the weight and history of patriarchy. But I really do want to be optimistic in the sense that the Me Too movement has raised consciousness and, you know, has, as everyone's saying, now we're having these conversations, we're talking about it, and that is an amazing starting point. So, so yeah, I'm feeling really hopeful about where things are going. Menakshi Zizi Durham is professor, collegiate scholar, and associate dean with the University of Iowa's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. I also spoke with Benjamin Whittington, a student at Iowa State University, Alan Heisterkamp, director of the Center for Violence Prevention and mentors in Violence Prevention Leadership Institute at the University of Northern Iowa, and Cody Howell, a violence prevention specialist at the Women's Resource and Action Center at the University of Iowa. This is Unsettled, Mapping Me Too, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio produced by Emily Woodbury, Lindsay Moon, and Caitlin Harrop. I'm Charity Nebbe.